Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Luke chapter 12. We're finally out of chapter 11. We were in chapter 11 for a long time, but we're in Luke chapter 12. Well, many of you know that today is Reformation Day. It's Reformation Sunday, October 31st, 1517. Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 theses to the Wittenberg Door Church there in Germany, launched the Protestant Reformation. And so it's a day that we celebrate that recovery of the gospel. And most of you have probably heard of Martin Luther, but I'm going to give you a little bit of history this morning to understand some things related to our faith. Many of you have probably never heard of Bishop John Hooper. John Hooper. Now, you've probably heard of King Henry VIII. Henry VIII was the brash monarch of England, married a bunch of wives. He defied the Pope's orders, and basically, he was the one that uh, got in trouble for divorcing his wife. And in 1534, he signed the Act of Supremacy, which established the church in England, the Anglican Church as the official church of England, so breaking ties with the Roman Catholic Church. And this was a major shift. And so under King Henry VIII's rule, Protestantism began to rise in England. There was more freedom for Protestant pastors to preach. And so upon his death, his son, Edward V, became England's king. And he was the first king to be raised Protestant. And he became seriously ill at the age of 15. And the doctors came in and said, this is a terminal illness. He's going to die very soon. And so what the, the young king wanted to do is he wanted to keep that vision alive that his father, Henry VIII, had started of making England Protestant. And so he designed, and his, his counselors came together, and they came up with a secession plan to make sure that the nation would not fall back into Catholicism. And so, if you remember, Henry VIII's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, she was Spanish, she was staunchly Catholic. They had a daughter, Mary. Mary was raised Catholic, staunch Catholic. And Edward did not want her or her stepsister Elizabeth becoming the queens of England. And so what he did was he appointed his cousin, Lady Jane Grey, as the heir. And nine days after Edward died, his sister Mary said, I'm not going to have any of that. So she came in and deposed the queen and had her beheaded. This was the beginning of Mary's bloody reign as the queen of England. You probably know her as Bloody Mary. That was her nickname. Why was she called Bloody Mary? Well, it was under her rule that she vigorously wanted England to return to Catholicism. And so she burned to the stake. She killed. She martyred many, many Protestants. And that was the nickname that she received, Bloody Mary. 
And during this time, many Protestant pastors were imprisoned and killed and burned at the stake. And this is where Bishop John Hooper comes into the story. He was a Protestant pastor. He was faithful to the Lord. And during this time, they would be brought to the tower, the Tower of London. And so he was captured and he was imprisoned in the Tower of London for two whole years, from 1553 until 1555. And then after two years, in January of 1555, he was brought out before the authorities and he was told, recant your Protestant teachings and just revert to Catholicism. If you would do so, you would be released. So this happened every day for the next few weeks. They'd bring him out, recant, recant, recant. He would say, no, I need to be faithful to what I believe the Bible teaches. And so finally on February 9th, they brought him out to a place of execution. They said, we're going to execute you. We're going to burn you at the stake. This is your last opportunity to recant. If you recant, you'll be let go. You'll be, you'll be released from prison. And so he did not, and he was martyred for his faith. He was burned at the stake. But I want you to listen to his dying words. This is a man who stared imminent death in the face and understood God's sovereignty, the reality of heaven, the reality of hell, and God as the ultimate judge. Listen to his words. He said, quote, It is better to make answer before the pomp and pride of wicked men than to stand naked in the sight of all heaven and earth before the just God at the last day. Life is sweet and death is bitter, but eternal life is more sweet and eternal death is more bitter. He understood the reality of heaven. He understood the reality of hell. He did not recant in the face of death because he knew one day he would face his Savior now, we could spend a month of Sundays here talking about all the people that got martyred for their faith, all the martyrs throughout church history, those Christians who stood in the face of death, and they seemed to have no fear. They seemed to face persecution and martyrdom, and they faced their accusers, and the Lord brought them home to heaven, even if it meant an excruciating death. Now, why do I bring up fear, death, martyrdom? Because Jesus is going to address this very issue in Luke chapter 12. Now, we've spent a lot of weeks looking at the Pharisees, looking at the lawyers. The past two weeks, we've looked at these woes, these six woes to the Pharisees, to the lawyers. They, they were hypocritical. They were false teachers. They were leading people astray. They did not receive Jesus' rebukes. They did not repent. They were instrumental in eventually arresting Jesus and having him brought before trial. And so Jesus is going to give some final words about these men. So let's just dive into Luke chapter 12. We're not going to spend a lot of time on verses 1 through 3. I'm going to spend minimal time because we've spent a lot of time on the Pharisees. This is basically a summary statement. Jesus basically says they're not going to get away with it. Okay, so, so Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven 
or the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Basically, what Jesus is saying is that the hypocrisy of the Pharisees will spread like yeast, like leaven. It will contaminate. It'll spread. These men are dangerous. They're hypocritical. But they will be revealed. They will become known. It will come to light. Their deeds will be exposed. They will be held accountable for their false teaching and hypocrisy. They may be able to fool others, but they cannot fool God. So that's all I'm going to say about that because we spent two weeks talking about the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. What I want to spend time on this morning is verses 4 through 7. This is where we're going to spend most of our time today. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and are not one of them is forgotten by God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Fear. Phobias. Let me see if some of you have these fears this morning. I'm going to list out some fears, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but there's some interesting fears that maybe you experience. Anybody have poganogophobia? I may be afraid of Cole back there. He may have poganogophobia. I'm not trying to pick on you, Cole, but it's fear of beards. Okay, fear of beards. If you have a fear of a beard, that's poganogophobia. Okay, anybody have taraphobia? Fear of bulls. Some of you may be afraid of bulls. Xenoglossophobia. Some of you in high school maybe experienced xenoglossophobia. That's fear of foreign languages. You don't like foreign languages. Okay, bataphobia. Some of you think, oh yeah, I don't like bats. With COVID and all this stuff, bats, bataphobia. That's not what bataphobia is. Bataphobia is fear of being close to high buildings. Anybody like that one? Okay, kids, I know you're going to raise your hands for this one, okay? This is called didascalinophobia. Fear of school. Okay? <laughs> Some of you woke up this morning and you had this fear. This is isotropophobia. Okay. This is fear of mirrors. Okay. <laughs> Jellyophobia. It's not fear of jello. It's fear of laughter. Some of you kids, when your parents give you Brussels sprouts or broccoli, you can say, I have lachanacophobia. That's fear of vegetables. Okay. And some of you may have metrophobia. That's fear of poetry. So some of you have these fears. I know you have these fears. You're just not admitting it. Okay. No. Anyway, I'm just, being, I'm just joking here. So fear. It's very interesting. When you trace the word fear, that's the word that shows up here. When you look at your Bibles, and, he, and actually what Jesus teaches right here, there are three types of fear that the Bible talks about. Three types of fear. And they all show up in this passage of Scripture. So we're going to look at those this morning. I want us to explore the three types of fear that the Bible teaches. Here's the first fear. A natural fear of people. Fear of man. Notice what Jesus says in verse 4. I tell you, my friends, 
Do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. Don't be afraid of those that are going to harm you. Now, these are natural fears that we have of what we think other people can do to us. Now, the reason I say it's natural is because it's our natural instinct to be fearful of other people. This is how we operate in the flesh. Proverbs 29, 25 says this, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. It's a natural fear of man, fear of people. Now, Ed Welch has written an excellent book, and I encourage all of you to read this book. I'm going to give you the title. It's, 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 this is the title. It's a long title, but it's an excellent book. When People Are Big and God is Small. Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency, and the Fear of Man. When People Are Big and God is Small. Ed Welch is a Christian psychologist who's written a lot of books. And I'm going to borrow some of his material here because I think it's so good. But he, he basically gives three reasons why we fear men, why we fear people, or how we fear others. And, and so let me just share those with you. I'm giving credit to him for this. He says, first, we fear people because they can expose and humiliate us. We fear people because they can expose and humiliate us. Maybe someone has the secret goods on you. Maybe they're afraid, uh, you're afraid that they're going to humiliate you. Maybe you're afraid of getting caught, getting found out. We tend to be really good at hiding our true self so that others won't find out the real us. That's what Jesus is addressing with these Pharisees. They're going to get exposed. They're trying to hide who they are, but they're going to be exposed. That may be one of your greatest fears, to be exposed, to be shamed, to be humiliated. What if I share a deep secret with someone that I really, really trust, and they break my confidence? and they gossip about me behind my back. I'm sure that's probably happened to you. you. You poured out your heart to someone. You trusted in them. You confided in them. And they had, they had that information. And they broke that trust. And they humiliated you. They went behind your back. And so once bitten, twice shy, I'm not going to share my heart anymore. I'm not going to give my heart to anybody because I feel betrayed. I feel embarrassed. I feel shameful. So I'm just going to put up walls and I'm going to guard myself because I don't want to be humiliated. That's one way you can live in fear of others. The second way that Ed Welch says is we can fear people because they can reject, ridicule, or despise us. They can reject, ridicule, or despise us. And so we don't like rejection, do we? We don't want to appear to be out of touch or we don't want to be, appear to be a goody-goody. We, we want to be in the in-group. We don't want to be in the outside looking in. We want to be part of the popular group. We want to be popular. We want to be liked. We, we want to be on the end. We want to be accepted. We don't want to look stupid in front of others. And so we're more concerned with not looking stupid in front of others than we are really in trusting in the Lord because we don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be left out. We don't want to look stupid. You know, King Saul was driven by a fear of men and peer pressure. You go back and read 1 Samuel, you find that that's how he operated. 1 Samuel 15, I'm not going to go there in great depth because it's a very difficult passage of Scripture, but needless to say, Samuel did not obey the Lord. 
when it came to the Amalekites. And, and I, mean, I mean, King Saul did not obey the Lord. And so Samuel comes to him. Samuel the prophet comes to Saul and confronts him. And listen to how Saul responds to the prophet Samuel. In 1 Samuel 15, 24, Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I feared the people. There was peer pressure. I didn't want to look stupid in front of the people. I I didn't want to be rejected by the people. In John's Gospel, he records how some of the religious leaders actually began trusting in Jesus, but they kept it secret because they didn't want to be found out. They didn't want the other Pharisees to know that they were following Jesus, and so they kept it secret. Listen to what Jesus says in John 12, 42 through 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, because the authorities believed, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they might not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Some of these leaders trusted Jesus, but they were afraid to be thrown out of the synagogue. They were afraid of the Pharisees, so they, 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 didn't, they didn't confess it. There was a fear of man. This is peer pressure. You don't want to be on the outside. You don't want to be shunned. You don't want to be ridiculed for following Jesus. The great Australian New Testament scholar Leon Morris says this. He says, quote, To love the glory of men above the glory of God is the supreme disaster. He calls it the supreme disaster to love the glory of men above the glory of God. Ed Welch says this, the third type of fear we have is we fear people because they can attack us, oppress us, or threaten us. That's the type of fear that Jesus is addressing here in this passage of Scripture. More of a persecution type fear. Maybe to the point of even death. You're you're afraid people are going to harm you physically. Now, people may not harm you physically, but they can threaten you either verbally or they can threaten you emotionally. They they can um, threaten you legally. I think that we've seen a lot of this in our culture recently. When you you stand up for being a Christian in today's culture, there's this marginalization. There's this being pushed to the sidelines. There's this, we want to silence you as Christians, and and our religious liberties are being under attack. And so there's this fear that we're going to be ridiculed. We're going to be um, oppressed. We're going to be persecuted. We're going to be threatened. Maybe you're afraid to speak up at work to defend your faith because of the consequences. Maybe you'll lose your job. Psalm 56, 3-4. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? That's basically what Jesus is saying. Don't fear what people can do to you. Because really, what can they do to you? What can people do to you? In the grand scheme of things. Even to the point of killing you, they can't take away your salvation. They can't take away your eternal life. Now, Ed Welch sums up these three reasons with this statement. This is kind of the thesis of his book. And again, I recommend you get his book. He says this, These reasons have one thing in common. They see people as bigger. That is, more powerful and significant than God. And out of the fear that creates in us, we give other people the power and right to tell us what to feel think and do what he says is 
When you fear others, you're basically giving them the power that you should be realizing that God has. You're, you're basically seeing them as bigger than they really are. You're not trusting in the Lord. The Apostle Peter gives these instructions in fearing man instead of trusting in the Lord. He says this in 1 Peter 3, 13-15. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Notice Peter talks about doing good, suffering for righteousness' sake, suffering for the right things, standing up for Jesus, standing up for truth, doing what's right, living for Jesus. And Peter says, don't worry about how they're going to harm you. you. You'll actually be blessed. Now, that doesn't make any sense. You'll be blessed for suffering for Christ's sake? I mean, what did Jesus tell us in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5, 11 through 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the first type of fear that the Bible addresses all through the Bible, you can see examples in the Old Testament, you can see specific teachings, is this natural fear of other people. Fear of what people can do to you, fear of being rejected, fear of being ridiculed, fear of being shamed, fear of being exposed, fear of being threatened. And that's what Jesus is addressing here. In verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. Don't fear people. Don't fear men. Jesus says. So, so the first type of fear the Bible talks about is a natural fear that we have of other people. And Jesus says, don't fear those that can kill you. And after that, have nothing to do with you. Okay, now here's the second type of fear. The second type of fear is a terror fear of God as a judge. This is a type of fear we don't often talk about. A terror fear of God as a as a judge. Notice Jesus' words are very clear. Look at verse 5. But I will warn you whom to fear. Don't fear people, but I'm going to tell you who to fear, Jesus says. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus flat out brings up the terminology of hell right here in the text. And he says, fear him who has the authority authority to cast you into hell. That's who you should fear. Now this brings up some questions. We need to talk about hell and we need to talk about God as being a judge. God is an all-knowing judge who has every right to cast unbelievers into hell. A place of eternal conscious torment. Now hell is not a topic that we really like to discuss. It's not pleasant. A lot of churches don't even talk about hell anymore. And we should never talk about hell with a smile on our face or with some type of glee. When we talk about hell, we should be sober-minded. We should be serious. It's a serious subject. We should be very prayerful. Now, you may have a little bit of a, a footnote in there that Jesus 
says cast into hell. Maybe your Bible has a footnote that says Gehenna, or maybe even says Gehenna in your Bibles. Why, why is the word, sometimes the word hell is called Gehenna, the valley of Hinnon, south of Jerusalem. Now let me give you the background of why it's called Gehenna and why this imagery would have been very important to the original readers of Jesus' time. In the Old Testament, it was called Tophet. Tophet was a high place. And literally, the word Tophet in the Old Testament means a place of burning or a place of spitting out. Now, if you can imagine this, there are two Israelite kings, Ahaz and Manasseh, that actually performed child sacrifices at Tophet. They burned their own children in the fire to the pagan god Molech. That's how bad it was. Israelite kings doing child sacrifices to a false god at a place called Tophet, a place of burning. That was the Old Testament imagery of it. In Jesus' day, it was the trash heap. It was the dung pile. It, it was basically the garbage dump of Israel outside Jerusalem. They would take all the trash out to Gehenna, and they would burn the dead bodies. They would burn the trash. There would be maggots. There would be worms. There would be, and, and then there would be perpetual smoke coming up from Gehenna. So when you look south to Jerusalem, you would always see the smoke rising, and you knew that was Gehenna. And so the symbolism of sm fire and smoke and all these symbolisms and, and, and perpetual fire coming up, that's why these images ring true when we think about the place called hell. And let me just be very clear so there's no mistaking. Hell is a literal place of eternal conscious torment. Let me say that again. Hell is a literal place of eternal. It means it goes on forever. Conscious, you will be aware of what's going on. Torment forever and ever. Revelation chapter 14 probably has one of the most graphic pictures of hell of anywhere in the Bible. Revelation 14, 10 through 11. Talking about those who take the mark of the beast, those who worship the beast, those who don't follow God, it says, He will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name That's the reality of hell. And Jesus here says, you need to fear the one who has the right to cast you into hell. You see, every unbeliever that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus should be scared to death of this God. It's a terror fear of the one who has the right to cast into hell. But here's the problem. Most unbelievers could care less. Most unbelievers don't even think about hell or God as a judge. They don't have this terror fear. They're not convicted of their sins. They don't think they're in rebellion against God. They laugh at the thought of hell and punishment. Listen to what the psalmist says. Psalm 36, 1. 
Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in this heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. There is no fear of God. There is no fear of punishment. There is no fear of hell. He does whatever he wants to do as he lives in his sin. Hebrews 10.31 says this, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God knows every single thing about you. God is omniscient. God is all-knowing. And if that's true, and you don't have a relationship with Christ, that should cause you terror. That could cause you fear because you can't run from this God who knows everything. Hebrews 4.13 says this, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now God's all-knowing, God's omniscience cuts both ways. It's a fearful thing for God to know all things for the unbeliever. But for the believer, that God knows all things, should lead to another type of fear. And so here's the third type of fear. Okay, the first type of fear is a natural fear of people. Jesus says, don't fear those. The second type of fear is a terror fear for the unbeliever, that God is a judge, and he has every right to cast into hell those who do not repent and believe in Jesus. Fear this God. But notice there's a third type of fear. We call it a worship fear of God as your father. Not a terror fear of God as your judge, but a worship fear of God as your father. Now there's a paradox in this passage. Have you noticed it? Jesus keeps saying, don't fear. Don't fear. Fear. Don't fear. He basically at the very end says, fear not. You're more valuable than many sparrows. This is a worship fear of a God who loves you and takes care of you. You've gone from being under his wrath and deserving of hell to being a child whom he deeply loves. And Jesus gives two examples here. One is the sparrow. What does he say about the sparrow? Are not five, this is verse six, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten by God? Okay, sparrows. It's one of the cheapest birds in Israel. It's what the poor people would go buy in the market to eat because they couldn't afford, like, steak or whatever. They'd buy sparrows, a couple of pennies. And so the point is, who cares about a little sparrow that falls out of the sky? There's a tiny little sparrow flying around somewhere, and, 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 and it's sitting there on a tree, and all of a sudden the sparrow dies in some forest that nobody even knows about. Who cares about the sparrow? And what does Jesus say? God does. God cares about that sparrow. God created that sparrow. God cares about this seemingly insignificant sparrow. God cares about that sparrow. And then Jesus says in verse 7, why even the hairs of your head are numbered. Now for some of you it's easier for God to number those than for others. But science, I'm not trying, I'm not just, just saying, scientists tell us that the average person has at least 100,000 hairs on our head. It's basically a poetic way of God saying he knows every intimate little detail about you. 
You're more valuable than the sparrow. He knows the hairs on your head. So here's the point Jesus is making. Your all-knowing, all-powerful Heavenly Father knows you. He cares for you. He's got your life in His hand. You're valuable to Him. He loves you. Now, what should that produce in you? A terror fear that He's going to throw me into hell? No, the exact opposite. That should lead to a worship fear. awe, a trust in the goodness of God. Psalm 118.4 says, let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You see, we still must fear the Lord, but here's the, here's the beautiful, glorious truth of the gospel. When Jesus died on the cross, He took all of God's punishment against us. He took God's justice, God's wrath, God's penalty that was aimed at us. Jesus took that. And so if you're connected to Jesus Christ by faith, you no longer relate to God as a judge worthy to be sent to hell. You relate to God as a a father who deeply loves you because you're your child because Jesus took that punishment. Jesus took that wrath. Jesus took all of that. But yet, God is still God and we're not. He's still the creator. He's still the sovereign. He still, even though he's our father, he still has every right to do whatever he wants because he's the Lord. And we should never have a flippant attitude towards God, even as his children. How often do we want a user-friendly God? He kind of does what we want him to do. Yeah, Jesus is my homeboy. God's my buddy. God, you need to do this for me. We're very flippant about how we relate to God. Yes, he's our father, and yes, he loves us, but let's remember that the word fear is still there. The Bible tells us to fear the Lord, not a terror fear, but a worship fear. We bow before him in humility and awe as our great sovereign. Over the years, I found comfort in the book of Ecclesiastes, of all places. Ecclesiastes is a weird book because it's very real. It gives you the reality of life in a fallen world. But there's this one verse I keep coming back to. It's Ecclesiastes 3.14. And let's listen to it. Solomon, the writer, King Solomon, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it God has done it why so that people fear before him God is sovereign God does whatever he pleases God has a plan for your life God is ultimately the sovereign creator of all things he's the powerful father creator the one that's worthy of worship and God has done all this why that we would fear before him a worship fear. One of the best places in the Bible that teaches us how God is a gracious Father that takes care of His children and why we should fear Him in the good way is Romans chapter 8. So let me just invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8. The greatest, well, I can't say the greatest, one of the greatest passages in all the Bible. 
If I say the greatest, that means that there's a, there's a weight to one passage over another, but it's, it's, a, it's at the top of my list. Romans chapter 8. And I want to read this in its entirety, not the entire chapter, but starting in verse 28. When I read these words, follow along in your Bible and just listen. Listen to how much your Father loves you. Listen to how much Jesus has done for you and how this should elicit within you a a good type of fear, a good type of worship. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people have to say, Amen. God's working out all things for your good. God has planned your salvation from first to last, and He will never let you go. God is for you and not against you. So who can be against you? God has given you all things in Christ. Nothing in the entire universe can separate you from the love of God. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, because this is true, you should not fear people and you should not fear hell. You should fear God in the good way because he's a father that takes care of his children. He has the hair in your heads numbered. You're more valuable than the sparrow. If you're not a believer, let me just say, pardon my French here, okay? If you're not a believer, you should have the hell scared out of you. If you are a believer, you should rest secure to know that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Romans 14, 8. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We are the Lord's. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And let these truths penetrate deep into your soul.